Just a quick note to say that if this episode ever sounds a bit technically dodgy, for example, like it's perhaps been recorded remotely during lockdown, well, it has been. On with the show. Hello and welcome to Comics Books. I'm Lucy Dancer and for many years I've worked as a producer alongside a number of excellent comedians. I'm also a book obsessive who's always asking friends and strangers alike what they're reading. So, I thought I'd bring my two passions together and find out what do funny people read. I am delighted today to welcome a comedian who's been lighting up the comedy circuit with his wit and charm. You might have seen him on Mock the Week, Frankie Boyle's New World Order, or the Saturday afternoon show Ishan Sunila Nim on BBC Asia Network. It's Ishan Akbar. Hello. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm so excited and nervous to be doing this. Why are you nervous? I'm nervous because I've always loved books, but and as you'll find out, books have been a big part of my life. But doing anything that's mildly literary, you've got to feel like you know what you're talking about. And <laughs> this is one one area where I just feel a bit like, ugh, what if I get caught out? You see, I don't think it matters. I think that that's maybe one of the things that stops people reading or talking about books. But really, books are genuinely for everyone. I mean, you can be very academic about it and have all your facts in order. Or you can just love reading. And that's fine too. Yeah. I mean, I absolutely, I grew up absolutely loving reading. Um, mm-hmm. And I feel like I could talk about it, but it's just because maybe also you, Lucy, you're a very intimidating personality. Me? I'm so gentle. <laughs> so gentle and lovely. I mean, could you be any more octaves higher? I don't know. It's <laughs> <laughs> so mean. Um, tell me first how your lockdown's going. My lockdown is going all right. I'm loath to admit it, but yeah, it's going all right. I am locked up with my dad, who is a paramedic. He's 60 and he's Asian, which puts him right in the middle of being quite at risk. So I'm always quite nervous for him. Hmm. But he seems very happy to be out there instead of spending time at home with me, uh, which has made me recently think that perhaps my dad is cheating on me with the doctor son he always wanted. That does um, make sense. And uh, so I'm trying to just, I'm just working through that at the moment. But other Tell than us. that, I've been quite productive and yeah, things have been good. And yeah, I'm having a You've nice You've been time. doing some sort of online uh, gigging and stuff, haven't you? I've done a couple of quote unquote stand-up gigs online, which have been quite fun, actually. There's a completely different skill set. But um, every week I do a podcast for Fiverr, which is an online recruitment agency, and I I did Newsjack Unplugged. I was hosting that. And I've got a few other podcast things and I get to do stuff like this. So, um, it, yeah, it's all kept keeping me quite busy. Um, I'm writing a sitcom like every other comedian at the moment, I think, um, and working on various other writing projects. So I've been enjoying the time, but I've really missed just being out on stage um, and not being out of my house. That's been quite, quite difficult. Are you going out for walks and stuff? I am. I actually recently started um, a whole exercise plan. Um, And, you know, I thought it's taken nine weeks of lockdown to inspire me to actually do some exercise. (laughs) Listen, when Boris first said you're allowed one bit of exercise a day, this was, you know, weeks ago now. That's when it dawned on me that actually I should be exercising, that even in the middle of a pandemic, you're making concessions for exercise. Maybe this is something I should have been doing this whole time. Um, and now he's given us the opportunity to do unlimited exercise. So I'm like, okay, 
<laughs> I, I, I'll stick to the once. I'll just do once. I don't know what unlimited exercise looks like. Um, so yeah, I've been exercising, which has been nice. Well, just so you know, the limit, it wasn't that you could only exercise once a day. It was that you could only exercise outside once a day, Ishan. You could, you could be doing box fit hit all day on YouTube inside this whole time if you wanted to. What? What? Hold on. Listen, exercise is a whole new world to me. You're, you're speaking <laughs> gobbledygook to me right now. I'm not very good at exercise either, but I am <laughs> trying to do it a little bit while we're stuck in because, uh. Well, like you said, Boris said it's 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 absolutely essential to exercise. Apparently, uh, he's he's not the kind of person. I mean, he's not the kind of person you'd want to take any kind of advice from. But when you look at him, you wouldn't <laughs> kind of think to yourself, "Oh, yeah, he knows what he's talking about when it comes to fitness." Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah it's a, he's maybe not not the one. Uh, this is it's obviously pertinent to the podcast. Have you been doing any reading while you've been in lockdown? Well, um. The answer is no. The short answer is no. I started reading again um, a couple of weeks ago. It was actually a biography of Karl Marx that I've started reading um, mm. by Francis Wien. But no, I basically, I stopped reading six years ago. Um, and I stopped reading. And I don't want to get too heavy, but I stopped reading at the time that my mum passed away. And the reason is, and I only realised this during lockdown, actually, which is that my association with reading was inextricably linked to my memory of my mum. Because my mum was um, a hugely significant advocate for reading and we would read together all the time. It was um, a a hugely central part to our relationship, actually. Um, And so unbeknownst to me for the last six years, I had somehow develop this kind of mental block when it came to picking up a book and I'd I'd bought plenty of books in the time you know going to a bookshop uh, still remains one of my um, favorite things to do Mm. and I'd bought books over the years but every time I started reading them I just felt like I couldn't I just stop and I had no idea what it was and um, during the course of this lockdown I discovered that that was probably the block um so luckily I picked up this book um, about Karl Marx and, I, I, you know, I had a purpose to it, which was I'm doing a podcast about Karl Marx after recording this one, as it happens. Um, so that was the impetus I needed. So that's interesting that you have such a such an emotional link to reading, not not mm. even to the books in, in particular, just to the act of reading. Yes. That it sort of disabled you from from really trying at all. Yeah, I think, so to give you a bit of a sense of my childhood, so my mum was, um, she was a huge fan of Victorian literature, as will become clear. In fact, she spent her whole life believing that she had been reincarnated into modern times, but was actually (laughs) the daughter of an aristocrat back in Victorian times. She completely believed she was. And so when I was growing up, this pre-internet, you know, my entertainment was books, and my mum and I would sit next to one another uh, and read books. She'd, you know, give me a book to read and she'd read whatever book she was interested in. And we'd sit down and we'd talk about it. And my weekends were, in large part, the timetable was just to sit around books. So it was just, it was, So it's more that it was just very natural to you and it was after it was gone that you realised quite how, quite how central it had been, would you say? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, 
Uh, I mean, this this podcast is meant is called Comics Books. It's meant to be funny, but it's just, it's just harrowing at the moment, isn't it? No, it's not um, meant to be funny. It's meant to be beautiful. <laughs> talking about what they read, you can be deep and interesting. You, you can see how all the Victorian literature has influenced my thinking about the, the world. Um, yeah, after she passed away, I, I no longer undertook the act of reading, and the act of reading was always synonymous with my mum being next to me. Do you remember what was the very first book that you either read or or had read to you? Before I really started reading novels, I my mum um, would read Enid Blyton to me. Mm. I have a distinct memory of being kind of five or six years old and having all the Enid Blyton books in our bookcase. My mum would also spend a lot of time kind of reading, um, well, the Quran. So the Quran is is the main text for for Muslims and believed to be the word of God, and the Hadith, uh, which is a collection of the life and times of the Prophet Muhammad. And my mum would read those to me, so I had those two. And then a big part as well, because my mum was from Bangladesh, Archie comics. <laughs> Randomly, Archie comics was they were always kind of in the toilet in the bookcase. I'd always be reading those. I love a toilet book. Oh yeah, yeah. We had a, a bookcase above the toilet. Very important, underrated, uh, I think. Yeah, <laughs> um, and I thought it was just normal. And so many of my friends would come round would say, "Would say, what the hell is this?" I'm like, "Well, you can just pick out a book and read." And I'm like, yeah, but it's the toilet. I'm like, that's exactly where you can read. It's great. <laughs> it's the most private place when you're a kid. People are always bursting into your bedroom, but the toilet is just lovely and quiet. Yeah, yeah. We had um. Loads of Reader's Digests there as well. <laughs> yeah, we did. We did. Very good. <laughs> yeah, loads of Reader's Digests. And my mum would, uh, and my dad, to be fair, would be like, okay, what's what did you learn from Points to Ponder? And I'd have to... <laughs> if, if you think about it, my, I mean, my upbringing was very weird. <laughs> it was quite weird. It's, it's quite weird. I mean, now that I think about it, this is why I didn't have friends when I was 11 or 12, because... I'd go to school talking about points to ponder. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. No wonder I became a comedian. This is... So um, now when you read, how, how do you read now? Or how have you started to read? Do you just... Do you, this is, this is a great I question. I, I, I don't want to sound too pithy, but I'm kind of learning again. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to find the place where I like reading. So... I don't really like reading in bed. Okay, um, why? Um, so I, I like um, reading books with the same kind of respect I'd afford anything, any other activity. Look, I'm one of these people. I don't fold the corners of my pages. I don't break the spine of my book. Oh, you're one of them. I'm very, very, you know, and it breaks my heart when I see that happen. I have, you know, serious issues when it comes to how my books are handled. So because I wouldn't eat in bed, I wouldn't read in bed. Oh, I, I also eat in bed. Okay, well, there we are then. <laughs> We've drawn our line. <laughs> We've drawn a line there. Let us talk, Ishan, about your book choices. I was, I mean, now you've explained to me uh, why you've gone for so many sort of Victorian classics. Um, I was quite surprised when I first got your list through. I don't know. I don't know what I expected you to read. Okay. But I guess it, it wasn't. The Secret Garden, I guess. The Secret Garden was the first novel that I finished and the first novel that I read repeatedly. Um, and it was one of my mum's 
it was in her top three. And I remember she gave me her copy to read first, which she bought in Bangladesh. In She would have had this book in Bangladesh in about nine, around 1960. When did she move here? She moved uh, here in 1970. So a lot of her sort of formative reading was in Bangladesh, but she read a lot of British literature. Yes, because my mum came from a very posh family and they sent her to a Roman Catholic posh school right. where... Bengali wasn't on the curriculum. It was all in English. She went to a school where they had etiquette classes. Oh, wow. And so because she was so immersed in all this stuff, she absolutely loved Victorian literature. She was like, ah. So, yeah, so her weathered copy she gave me and she she handed it to me like it was a prized trophy. Mm. And was like, this book is absolutely amazing. And I read it and it is amazing. But for a child, it's really heavy. Well, I'd forgotten. You know, you know when you read something when you're young and you think, oh, that's nice, and then you go back to reread. So I did for this, and I thought, oh, that is quite heavy, actually. There's a lot of quite serious themes in that book. Yeah, I mean, parents don't really love you. Mm-hmm. And then there's a, <laughs> there's a cholera epidemic that kills them. Mm-hmm. Then you go to an uncle that you don't really know. Mm-hmm. And it's just a bit like, huh, there's a lot to unpack here. Yeah, but I think she's a wonderful writer, Frances Hobson Burnett. And she... Mm create this beautiful world, particularly when she wrote about the garden. And I think I immersed myself. That was the first time I found myself immersing myself into this world. And actually, she was able to do such an amazing job of having these harrowing stories. But the centerpiece of the garden gave you just that moment of escapism from the harsh realities of, of Mary's world. Yeah. I think also the fact that she was born in India to British parents and that had a bit more of a connection to it in the sense that my, my mum... Look, she didn't think that the empire was great. Yeah. But she was also not averse to some of the things to do with the empire. (laughs) Okay. I feel like that's kind of normal when there's just so many aspects to it. Many of them are negative, obviously. But I think you can't hate every single thing, I suppose, particularly if she loves Victorian literature and, and the idea of class and all that comes with it, doesn't it? Yeah, 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 exactly. And also, you know, having my my brother, who's 10 years younger than me, so I would have read this book when I was about 9, 10. Mm-hmm. When I reread the book around the age of 11, 12, and I had this younger brother, I felt a lot of connection between Mary and, well, it was her cousin, Colin. Colin, yeah. So I felt a lot of kinship there. And I think that's probably why it embedded to me, because I thought to myself, oh, you know, if, if my, my brother was the way Colin is, then I would want my brother to find every bit of happiness so yeah so I found myself having that kind of connection as well do you think you'd reread that again now absolutely and also I think that if if I were to ever have children and they got to the age where they could could read and understand this book this would probably be the first book I'd give them oh you wouldn't be scared that they'd be terrified by all the darkness no because you know what I mean that's the thing with Victorian literature it was the dickens all these guys they the Brontes, it was all steeped in reality and it was harsh and it was painful and it was difficult. And I, I loved it for that reason. And it just I, prepares you, doesn't it? It prepares you for the, the shitness of life. Sorry. <laughs> well, it's true. I mean, life isn't all, isn't all rainbows and unicorns. And I do think that some of the, the, the classics that I read when I was younger, even, even contemporary fiction, but I've, I read a lot of um, Michelle, I don't know if you say Megorian or Majorian, but she wrote a lot about the Second World War. 
yeah. and kids that had been made refugees. She wrote um, Goodnight, Mr. Tom, and a little love story and back home. And even though we weren't going through any sort of war, it was the first time that I'd read books where everyone was scared all the time. You know, they yeah. were scared about where their parents were and they were scared about bombs and they were scared about Hitler. But they were also joining theatre companies and going for picnics and, mm. you know, meeting each other for tea. And I think we always underestimate young adult literature when I've gone back to read it now that a lot of it is is about dealing with the darker side of life. Absolutely. And also it's, you know, through all that tragedy and all that difficulty, weirdly, beautiful art is born. Mm. And this is what, to me, what Victorian literature represents, almost every book of the time, is the fact that people were able to write such beautiful books and such seminal texts. Um, you know, it's no surprise that even in the modern age, when they start, you know, as we reach the modern age, that people do turn to Victorian literature and try and rehash them. Yeah. Uh, and make films based on um, old Victorian literature. In fact, you know, the multi-billion dollar Bollywood industry is just modern Victorian literature. It's just pain and families and, well, there weren't any dances in Victorian literature, but they add the medium of dance. It's interesting, though, because it is not the easiest to read. You know, I mean, I've read a lot of contemporary literature for this podcast that people have, have picked up and rereading Wuthering Heights, which is your second choice was one of the harder things I had to do just because it's a slower process, I think, or it is at least for me. Absolutely, especially Wuthering Heights. It's very, very dense. Um, mm. And yeah, I think that's the thing is because it's a bit of a um, catch-22 in the sense that you need the description you, and the description often helps you immerse you into that world, but yeah. you have to be willing to do that. You have to be willing to go on that journey. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, it's just heavy reading. It, I wouldn't necessarily recommend Victorian literature for someone that was not into reading. Yeah, and I think I, sometimes, yeah. you know, you read it at school and it's not always the best, <laughs> the best introduction to books. Absolutely. I am um, in school. I always did. Unsurprisingly, I always did very well with Victorian literature. I quite liked Shakespeare, but I'd never immersed myself as well as I did into Victorian. Mm -hmm. um, and I distinctly remember my English master uh, saying, oh, God, I can't believe I said English master. <laughs> In case you hadn't worked out, dear listener, I went to private school. This turned me into an absolute tosser. <laughs> oh, God, help me. I'm definitely not going to cut that. You know that, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, my English teacher. Master. <laughs> he once enraged absolutely enraged that i wasn't taking king lear seriously and he goes why don't you have the same passion for this as you do for the bloody victorians <laughs> and i was like i had no idea this was this was my reputation <laughs> so, so tell me about uh why you chose wuthering heights right so wuthering heights this book this was my mum's favorite book uh my mum was weirdly in love with heathcliff all through her life. Uh, understandable. <laughs> um, and the real story for this is, um, so English was the fourth language I learned to speak. Mm -hmm. And um, Tell us all your languages, come on, show off. All right, Bengali, Urdu, Hindi and Punjabi, whatever. Uh, 
so when my mum heard me speaking English with my friends around the age of like 10, maybe 11, mm. she was absolutely incandescent with rage that I dared to have an accent that was um, in keeping with my local area. You know, I had an East London Essex twang and my mum could not believe it. She heard me speaking to my friends. She grabbed me by the earlobe, dragged me home, pulled out Wuthering Heights and said, right, now's the time for you to learn about Heathcliff. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm there going, what is Heathcliff? Am I, this is a new bit of discipline I've never heard of. And she said, Heathcliff is the most amazing man in the entire world. You're going to read Wuthering Heights and you're going to become like Heathcliff, a gentleman. I'm like, okay. <clears throat> and of course, as you read the book, you, you kind of learn that he's, he's a bit flawed. He's a bit of a dick. Uh, just a bit flawed, just a tad flawed. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, I, I immersed myself in this book and I absolutely loved it. The sweeping plains of the moors and the detail, all of that. Loved it, loved the book. And then when I read it again later, I remember going to my mum and saying, Mum, why would Heathcliff not have a Yorkshire accent? If you want me to speak, surely I should speak like Geoffrey Boycott. And my mum looked at me and said, there is no way a gentleman can have a Yorkshire accent. <laughs> <laughs> oh, mum, you're so racist. <laughs> sorry to any Yorkshire listeners. My mum can take it. I'm sorry. Oh, my God. You would have been great with a Yorkshire accent. Can you imagine? It'd be bloody great. I don't know what that was. Sorry. <laughs> it was something. It was something. I enjoyed it. Thank you. <laughs> uh, I mean, Heathcliff is the original bad boy, so I get where your mum's coming from. But yeah, yeah. I wouldn't want my son to be a Heathcliff, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I kind of think my mum wouldn't have had an issue. <laughs> Genuinely, she, like, she, she liked the fact that he was dark and flawed, but he was just so impressive. And, but a lot of Victorian literature, like particularly, yeah, a lot of Victorian literature has this, where the female protagonist has to fall in love in spite of the awful characteristics of the male leads and all the women have to just accept and just wait until the, the male lead kind of acquiesces Mm. and eventually sees them for who they are. And it's a, it's a bit much. It's not great for a modern feminist context at all. Um, But yeah, the characters were rich and they, they, like you say, the original bad boys, but yeah, so uh, Wuthering Heights was a very important book to me and it, it made me, it made me sound the way I sound now mm-hmm. uh, because I had to read it aloud to my mum uh, who said, read it as though you're on radio. Well, now you are on radio. On the regs. That's on the regs. See, your mum knew what she was doing. Oh, bloody hell. You should thank Wuthering Heights next time you're on News Jack. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I will. This goes out to Heathcliff. <laughs> <laughs> Did you did you choose your next two books, or are these are these mother choices too? Uh, one of them is a mother choice. Uh, God, I sound like such a Victorian kid as well, don't I? Mother chooses everything for me. Um, Perfect. It's okay. I've read many other books. These are the books that had the biggest impact on me. One of them was chosen by my mum, and the other by myself. Uh, which okay. one would you like me to talk about? Um, a thousand splendid sons, because I think I want to read it from from the description I had to research for you. I didn't have time to read it before this, but it sounds. Amazing. 
A Thousand Splendid Sons um, is a book that I chose and was the follow. Yeah, myself, like a big boy. Went into the shop without mummy. Well done. So Khaled Hosseini is an Afghan-American author who wrote the absolutely amazing Kite Runner, Mm. uh, which has been adapted into a film and a theatre and and a play. The book hasn't turned into a theatre. There isn't a theatre called The Kite Runner. Anyway, Mm. um, uh, so this was the follow-up to the book. And... What's different about this, and Carlo Tosseni says himself, is it explores a mother-son relationship, whereas The Kite Runner explored a father-son relationship. It was a book that had two female Afghan leads, and it is set in the time of the Taliban in Afghanistan. And it is just brilliant. And it is the book that moved me to tears on the tube. And Hosseini, by his own admission, said that this was a much harder book to write than the the kite runner i think partly because he was worried about the second album syndrome just because mm-hmm. the kite runner was so good but also he was trying to write about female leads when he had some sort of connection with the male leads in his first book mm-hmm. but he did an amazing job and i don't want to say too much um if if your readers are going to to read it your listeners are going to read it and you yourself but you absolutely fall in love with the characters and you feel every emotion. And Carla Hosseini, much like some of his Victorian predecessors, is brilliant at painting a picture. Mm-hmm. And you, th- you find yourself immersed in the worlds that they're occupying. And so for this reason, I chose A Thousand Splendid Sons because it was absolutely amazing. And your final book is That Must Be by Process of Elimination, A Mother Choice. It is A Mother Choice. Now, this, I was... 13 years old uh and on my birthday my mum gifted me two books mm-hmm. one book was a path to power by margaret thatcher wow because my mum was she was a thatcherite okay guys fine my mum my mum loved margaret thatcher <laughs> i feel like you're really not proud of yourself in what, this. what are you gonna do eh? <laughs> my mum was a staunch thatcherite my down. dad yeah, right. My mum was a staunch Thatcherite. My dad, a staunch trade union labourite. Okay. Oh, perfect marriage. So I grew up in this household with these two hugely opposing views of the world. Mm-hmm. And she gave me that book. And she also gave me the book that I've chosen for this, which is A Long Walk to Freedom by Nelson Mandela. And uh, eagle-eared listeners, or whatever the equivalent is, I've changed the phrase, do eagles bat bat eared listeners bats have good hearing don't they yeah they do really good hearing what what is the phrase is there a phrase about ears uh i mean you've really put me on the spot now and i cannot be certain eagle-eyed eagle-eyed uh listeners and bat-eared listeners will know (laughs) that margaret thatcher once referred to nelson mandela as a a terrorist but that didn't seem to affect my mum too much who really admired nelson mandela and uh suggested that i read this book and learn about him and yeah, it was my first uh, autobiography, and he is a hugely impressive man. And uh, Nelson Mandela, what, that this particular book helped me understand, unsurprisingly, a lot about race relations, not just in South Africa but across the world, yeah. um, in the UK. As uh, someone who is of an Asian background, whose whose own father was stabbed by the National Front twice. This was a book that really helped me understand the struggle. Yeah. 
and why it's important and why even today at the time of recording we still have situations as we do in america where an unarmed black man is kind of asphyxiated to death with the knee of a police officer yeah and so this had a huge impact on me from that perspective but also the stuff i learned about how one can achieve greatness even with humble beginnings i remember this was the book where i learned that nelson mandela and his family would use cow dung to build houses and i remember this fact completely changing my view of the world yeah and just thinking i had no idea a that you could do that but also the fact that i'm reading about a man who wrote this book that started like that when i've had the privilege of having bricks and mortar around me yeah um and so my mum and my dad for that matter both all three of us read the book actually and we'd sit down and we'd talk about it and my brother was born uh in the year that um apartheid ended so long walk to freedom was hugely significant for me for for those reasons yeah so i haven't read all of it i went to south africa and i went to the apartheid museum and they had um extracts of it and I remember just, I realised he was on Robin's Island for so long mm. with no definitive idea of when he was coming out. Mm. And the thing I found the most affecting was he wrote about how he treated the guards, how he spoke to them, yeah. and how he made them see he was human by treating them as human. Well, the f- most incredible explanation of... of- I read a follow-up to this, um, mm. a book called Goodbye Bafana. And Goodbye Bafana was written by one of his guards, mm-hmm. a guy called James Gregory, who just detailed that the subtitle of this book is, uh, so the title is Goodbye Bafana, the subtitle is My Prisoner, My Friend. And he also detailed that Nelson Mandela, yes, he treated James with such great respect that James and him ended up becoming friends on this island whilst mm. James was a gatekeeper, in a sense, of the very system that imprisoned him. And yeah, Nelson Mandela just conducted himself with such grace. I mean, he was, of course, all of our great heroes are flawed in some way. People would look at Nelson Mandela's relationship with his wives and his children and say that he was not great. But woman, this, <laughs> this pursuit, pursuit of perfection, I think, sometimes is, is fraught with, with danger. Um, yeah. But at his core... Nelson Mandela was an amazing man and A Long Walk to Freedom was an absolutely amazing book to capture and I'm really glad that he wrote it. Have you ever thought about writing a book? I am working on a novel which is based on my mum's life actually which I started many a few years before she passed away because my mum's story like I've said you know if, if you are particularly if you are someone well anybody actually who's listening Use this opportunity to speak to your parents and your grandparents about their stories because you will unearth stuff that you just, you sometimes bemoan. I sometimes bemoan being someone who grew up at this time because I don't think I've got any, any interesting stories to tell my kids and grandkids. Yet. 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 The, the other day I tweeted to say that um, I made myself some um, uh, poached eggs and avocado on toast and mm. I'm looking forward to tell, telling my grandkids about my part <laughs> in fighting this pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> but yes I've been, I've, been, I've been working on a novel um which there are discussions underway so it's a, a sweeping tale of love loss and 
searching for for your child in the Victorian style. I see. In a Victorian style, yes. There's be a, there'll be a lot of detail, but yeah. So hopefully that's something I can pull off before I die. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I wanted to say that you've got. I know you you didn't mention this when you said that you'd been hanging around doing stuff, but aren't you putting one of your big your big shows on the YouTube? You I am. So my tw- my twenty gosh twenty eighteen show, profit like it's hot. Very good show. Uh, Enjoy thank it. you. I yes, I'm releasing that on on YouTube. In I haven't decided on the date yet, but it will be in June at some point. So keep an eye on my socials as I make announcements about that. Uh, but yeah, I'm looking forward to getting that released. So Ishan, while everyone is on lockdown and some of the independent stores are struggling a little bit, we thought we'd do some nice shout outs for ones that are opening and trying to trying to encourage some more purchases being made. Do you have one that you'd recommend? Yeah, look look for the Owl Bookshop in Kentish Town. Owl, O-W-L, Owl. Oh, um, I've driven past that one. It's massive. It's really big and a mm. uh, nice little green facade, which I like. I don't know why. That that's what drew me in. It was the green facade and the gold writing, and I was like, "That that looks good." You don't need a reason. It's absolutely fine. Um, but yeah, it's beautiful. It's really big. It's got a good range, uh, and uh, yeah, it's very nice. So that that's the one I'd recommend. Well, Ishan, thank you so much for coming and talking about books with us today. It has been a delight. Thank you for having me, Lucy. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Comics Books. I hope you enjoyed it. In the show notes, you'll be able to find full listings of all the books we mentioned, as well as links to our featured independent bookshop. Have a great week, reading, laughing, and then reading some more.